Today's episode contains depictions of violence and murder against Indigenous people. We ask that you use your best judgment before listening to today's episode. If you are an Indigenous person, please consider a form of self-care after listening. Thank you. So if you didn't listen to last week's episode, we encourage you to go back and listen as we gave a lot of historical context for part two of our story for this week. Our story this week will focus on the Osage Reign of Terror and the mysterious murders of Osage tribal members. This is the Red Justice Project. Hometown hero, lost alive. While dozens of families were affected by what we are talking about next, we're going to focus on one particular family, the family of Molly Burkhardt, an Osage woman. Molly and her family are extensively covered in Killers of the Flower Moon, a nonfiction book released in 2017 that covers this story in great detail and is actually being made into a movie with the same name by Martin Scorsese. And I actually think Leonardo DiCaprio is in the movie too. And the movie is set to be released in, in the fall of 2022. But back to 1921. As we mentioned in our last episode, this was the year that U.S. Congress created the Osage Guardianship Program, basically saying that each of the enrolled Osage citizens that received royalties from all oil production on their lands needed a white guardian overseeing their money. Okay, so Molly, as Brittany mentioned, was an Osage woman with three sisters. In May 1921, Molly was starting to kind of get worried about one of her sisters, Anna Brown. So no one had seen Anna in like three days. And while she was known to like go out and dance and drink with friends, she usually was back home the next day. So this really worried Molly. And it's important to note that Molly already had a sister, Minnie, who had died three years earlier at the age of 27 from what was diagnosed as wasting illness, which seemed off to the family since Minnie had been in perfect health before that. So Molly was really, really worried about Anna's whereabouts since she had just lost another sister. Yep. And as we mentioned, Molly was an Osage tribal member and her family, including her mom and sisters, were all also registered members of the tribe, meaning they received head rights and the fortune that came with those rights during that time. Unfortunately, Molly's dad, who was also an Osage tribal citizen, had passed away by this point. Molly was married to a white man from Texas at the time named Ernest Burkhart. So Molly and Ernest did live in a nice large home but she wasn't really kind of the bougie type, you know, she wasn't that Osage tribal citizen with everything beaded, including her eyebrows, Brittany. 
you know, but she, you know, she didn't live quite as lavishly as others and she still practiced a lot of her traditional ways. So she still woke up each morning with the sun to pray and she still wore some Osage traditional clothing and she did the best she could to walk in two worlds and she still wore her hair long and flowy in a more traditional style unlike many Osage women who at the time styled their hair in the flapper bob that was really popular in the 1920s. And let me tell you, Brittany, I would look a hot mess in a flapper bob, so I too would have went with a traditional style. <laughs> yeah, I had a bob at one point, and I just ended up looking like Dora the Explorer, so uh, not, a, not a good era, Brittany Hunt. R.I.P. to Brittany Hunt 2012-2014. But as Josie mentioned... Molly was one of the last people to see her sister Anna when she had come over to Molly's house for a luncheon. And Anna actually showed up drunk, which was upsetting to Molly because there were other guests there. And this was also something that Anna did pretty often, especially since she had divorced her husband, a white man named Oda Brown. At the luncheon, there were several people there, including Molly's brother-in-law, Brian Burkhart. And it actually has been reported that Anna had an on-again, off-again dating thing with Brian. So he was somebody who she knew and trusted. And it was actually Brian who ended up making sure that Anna got home safe that night. So him and the other men swear that, you know, Anna made it home before the men went out and enjoyed a night out for themselves. And Molly had actually stayed home that night after the luncheon to take care of her mom, Lizzie, who was sick at the time. But with each passing day, you know, after the luncheon and after Brian said that he had got Anna home that night, Molly became more worried. She sent Ernest over to check on Anna's house, but he saw no sign of her and kept reassuring his wife that she was probably out traveling and she knew how to take care of herself since she always carried a small pistol in her alligator skin purse. Lordy, that sounds just like an indigenous woman to have a nice little accessory and also a weapon inside of it. Right, like all I could think about is us Lumbee women and how we always have a knife in our nice little purses. I even have a knife that looks like a tube of lipstick. And so it's very, um, I don't know, perfect for me. I feel like it sums me up, you know what I mean? But another thing that we have not mentioned yet is that a few days before Anna went missing, another Osage person went missing too, and his name was Charles Whitehorn, and he was a really popular Osage man who left home on May 14th, so about a week before Anna, and he just never returned. And as Brittany mentioned, Charles was like super popular, so his, you know, disappearance actually caused quite a stir in the town. And about two weeks after his disappearance, an oil worker actually discovered his body in some brush. He'd been murdered, shot execution style twice between the eyes. Which is just so crazy to me. But when his body was discovered, another body was discovered not too far away by a couple of squirrel hunters. And the body was badly decomposing and swollen and it had been left out in the hot prairie sun. And I'll have to imagine that since the weather conditions would not have been good for a person to be left out like that. And the person's skin had turned black and it was almost impossible to identify him. But unfortunately, that person ended up being Anna Brown. Molly was called to the scene since the town knew that Anna was missing. Immediately, Molly recognized Anna's Indian blanket she always wore and the clothes she had given her the night before she had left her house. So I think she had washed up some clothes for her after the luncheon. The undertaker um, for her body later noticed a bullet hole in the back of Anna's head. 
but her case was never fully investigated as a murder. And it should also be noted that during this time, autopsies were not required and did not occur for indigenous people. It was a privilege only for white settlers. So Anna's family actually offered a handsome $2,000 reward, which was a lot of money during that time, for any information in Anna's death, but no one ever came forward. Even Molly's husband's uncle, so Molly's husband, as we mentioned, is Ernest, his uncle, William Hill, who will become a prominent figure in our story, offered rewards for both Anna and Charles Whitehorn's killers to come forward. So at this point, Molly has lost two sisters as well as her dad, and thankfully she still has another sister and her mom, or so she thinks. Yeah, so things do not continue to play out well for Molly. Only two months after Anna's death, her son-in-law, Bill Smith, who was her daughter Rita's husband, believed that Lizzie had been poisoned like her daughter Minnie had years before. Bill Smith was an Osage man, and so he also had head rights and kind of understood the target on their backs as wealthy natives. And he just thought there was no justification for the weird wasting away disease that both, you know, Minnie and then now her mom had been diagnosed with and then ultimately died from. So when Lizzie was living, she had four head rights, her own, plus those of her two late daughters, Anna and Minnie, and her husband. And so those head rights were then passed on to Molly and her sister Rita. And again, as Chelsea pointed out, no autopsy was performed on Lizzie since she was a native woman. Then, not even two years later, in March 1923, tragedy struck the family again. Rita Smith and her husband Bill, who Chelsea mentioned earlier, were killed when a bomb exploded in their home, along with their young white servant Nettie, who was only 17 at the time, y'all. The Smiths had actually been fearful of something happening to them considering how Rita's two other sisters and then her mama had all died and so they had actually moved out of the country and into a home in town where they thought they would be safer. And also remember there are other strange poisonings and murders happening outside of this particular family so they were extra suspicious of everything happening. Bill had been very vocal about demanding that the murderers be tracked down, making his appeal several times to tribal council to take action. Right, like this family had been put through the ringer. I mean, can you imagine how M Molly must have felt to see her family, just all of them die within the span of a few years? And not only did Molly's final sister die that year, but her cousin, Henry Rowan, was also found shot to death during that same year in January 1923. You know, to lose one family member in a tragic way is unthinkable, but to continually go through it must have been heartbreaking for Molly. And y'all, these deaths would not be the only mysterious ones for the Osage Nation even after the explosion. The true number of murders is still not known today, and the explosion at the Smith home really urged the Osage Tribal Council to take action. They made an appeal to the federal government to investigate what was happening in their tribal territory, and guess what? It really was so bad that the government actually did something, guys. They had a department called the Bureau of Investigation that came down to investigate what was happening, and this department later became what we know now as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI. 
Like, you know it's got to be a bad situation if even the U.S. government, who is notoriously against indigenous people, is curious enough to investigate. I mean, even the Washington Post was, like, reporting on what was happening in Oklahoma. You know, they had an article come out around this time called Conspiracy Believed to Kill Rich Indians. Wow. And also, and another important thing to note is this is actually the FBI's, I think, first case that they ever covered or the first murder case they ever covered. And that's what it becomes known as. And the FBI's director, who's very famous, y'all probably recognize his name, J. Edgar Hoover, actually sent undercover agents to help uncover what was happening to the Osage people. So let's go back to Molly. As we mentioned, Molly was married to Ernest Burkhart, a white man from Texas. Ernest came to Oklahoma from Texas following the footsteps of his uncle, William Hale. And Chelsea, do you want to give a little bit of background on William Hale since he's a central figure to the story? Sure. So William Hale was also originally from Texas, but moved to Indian Territory in Oklahoma and started raising cattle. Hale Ranch became prominent and made William Hale a fortune. Even with his ranch money, Hale still sought more and more and was so notorious throughout the Osage Reservation for his bribery and his extortion, but yet he still remained kind of a popular figure among everyone because he was able to use his money to persuade local politics, much like we see today. You know, he used money for favors and to get away with many of his antics. And even though he had amassed a fortune in Oklahoma, William was still a greedy and dangerous man. He set his sights on the fortunes of the Osage people, and he had help from his two nephews, Ernest and Brian Burkhart. As we mentioned, Ernest married Molly, giving him direct access to Molly's head rights as her husband. And essentially, the last family member standing, Molly, had obtained her mother and her sister's head rights as well. The mass collection of those head rights, y'all, I mean, we're talking about half a million dollars at this point, could ultimately have gone to Ernest, a white man, since he was legally married to Molly. Again, many white men around this time married Native women to gain access specifically to their head rights. And you did not have to be indigenous or an Osage citizens to obtain somebody's head rights before 1925. So by the time the BOI arrived in Oklahoma to start investigating in 1925, um, Molly was growing increasingly ill. So it was actually discovered that she was ultimately being poisoned by her white doctors who were recommended to her none other than by her uncle, William Hill. She thought she was receiving insulin shots for diabetes, but was being pumped with poison instead. Thankfully, Molly survived and ultimately left the care of her doctors. During that same year, a new federal law was passed prohibiting non-Osage citizens from inheriting head rights of Osage citizens possessing more than one half Osage ancestry. For someone like Molly, who was full Osage ancestry, she was able to ultimately pass her head rights down to her children, even though they only had one half ancestry. This new law did cut down on some of the corruption happening, but the BOI still had the task of figuring out, you know, who was killing some of these Osage people. And no one in the town wanted to say anything about William Hale in fear for their life. Again, he was a really rich and powerful man. He owned over 45,000 acres of land and donated to schools and hospitals and always referred to himself as a friend of the Osage. 
And if that's how he treats his friends, y'all, then I don't, I definitely don't want to be his enemy. But even with all the gossip around town that he was the one behind some of the murders, Molly thought that he would help find Anna's killer since he considered her a good friend. And this is where the role of the undercover agents come in from the BOI. Eventually, after some time living on the reservation, the agents were able to get the townspeople talking, and it came to light that William Hale was behind everything, something that they had suspected for a long time. Brian Burkhart came in as the informant for the FBI, and eventually Ernest Burkhart confessed to helping his uncle, and charges were finally brought against Hale, the contract killer he hired to kill so many Osage people, as well as Hale's attorney. William Hale and a gang of his accomplices were finally arrested in January of 1926. And between 1926 and 1929, there were several trials in various state and federal courts to try to convict William Hale. The Burkhart brothers and Hale's hired hitmen of the various crimes committed throughout the Reign of Terror. And just know that there were probably many more corrupt men involved in other various murders of Osage people, but they were never charged with any crime. Finally, in 1929, William Hale has his final murder trial. And y'all, I want you to know this man was only convicted of one murder, and that was the shooting of Henry, who we mentioned was a cousin of Molly and Anna. And let's just mention why Henry was killed. So, obviously, he was kin to Molly, but I'm not sure if she would have had access to his head rights since, um, you know, he did have two children and he was married. But Henry was, and you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes here, good friends with William Hale. And he didn't know this, but William had actually taken a life insurance policy out on his friend Henry, naming himself as the sole beneficiary. And you know that this man, William Hale, had the audacity to try to cash the $25,000 life insurance policy on Henry just one week after he was murdered. And I'm talking about, like, they were good friends. William was actually one of Henry's pallbearers at his funeral. He was just a disgusting human being, and I was so glad that the family got justice for at least one murder. Wow. That's, again, that's just so sick, you know, with friends like that who needs enemies. But, again, and y'all had to know this was coming, but that justice did not last long. Hale ended up serving less than 20 years for the murder of Henry, even though he was, he was sentenced to life in prison. So in 1947, he was paroled and spent his life in Montana and Arizona before dying in 1962. Ernest Burkhart was later released in 1959 for his role in the murders and was granted a full pardon from the governor in 1966, clearing him of any wrongdoings. And worst of all, Brian Burkhart never served any time at all since he was the informant and he was helping ga gather evidence, even though he admitted to being an accomplice to one of the hitmen who was hired to kill Anna Brown. So today, the tribe still has the Osage Mineral Estate for the oil, gas, and minerals below, you know, the almost one and a half million acre reservation. The U.S. government holds the mineral state in trust for the Osage Nation as a whole, and it's managed by the BIA's Osage Agency, which is under the U.S. Department of Interior. And for those not familiar, the BIA is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So basically, they kind of handle everything related to the estate and even collect funds earned from the estate. And in 2011, the Osage actually earned like a $380 million settlement from the U.S. government after a decade-long court battle over the way the government had been mishandling their funds. 
And I'm not sure of how the trust is doing now, but I really hope that, you know, there's more oversight and not by the wrong people. And the head rights we mentioned throughout the episode are still distributed quarterly through the estate. Because of everything that happened, about 25% of the head rights are still currently owned by non-Osage members, including churches, people, and other corporations, which is just totally unfair. And as of March 2022, the shareholder payment was $5,665, according to the Osage Nation. While the Osage people are no longer among the richest people in the world, the effects of the oil industry are still felt today. The oil industry in Osage County has provided many job opportunities for Osage across Oklahoma, as well as help with the economic development of the whole country. The Osage Nation Constitution vests the Osage Minerals Council with the powers to administer and develop the Osage Mineral Estate. And I also just want to, again, just really harp on the fact that, you know, the Osage went from being the richest people in the world to now just getting five fifty six hundred dollars every what every quarter so every three months you know that's not gonna that's not gonna make you rich getting getting that amount of money and so it's just amazing how you know those white men moved into the county and just totally disrupted this 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 you know this oil that they were entitled to after being forced off their traditional homelands and I just kept can't help but think about the first episode we did of this season you know Pocahontas's story and thinking about how when white men moved into her community how the tribe was totally disrupted and impacted by you know this large amount of white men moving in to take resources from the land and to also take the native women so I just want y'all to think about that too. Yeah, I think about that often, and as I was researching for the show, I just kept thinking about the generational impact of how it's still being felt today. And, you know, as we mentioned, you know, the story of Molly Burkhart and others were featured in the novel Killers of the Flower Moon, and it'll soon be a major film coming out starring Leonardo DiCaprio. I think he actually plays the role of Ernest Burkhart, who's married to Molly. I think despite it being such a tragic point in U.S. history, it's also important to keep sharing these stories. You know, I think it truly helps people, especially non-Indigenous people, understand Indigenous struggles to be seen and heard and just a constant reminder of, you know, the crimes that we've gone through for centuries at this point and hopefully helps, you know, for those of y'all listening, understand how we think about true crime in an Indigenous context. Definitely. And it also makes me realize, you know, how resilient and strong we are. And I'm going to share a quote from Margie Burkhart, who was Molly's granddaughter. As you can imagine, her family has garnered a lot of attention since the book came out a few years ago. And this is what Margie said. She said, I think for the next generation of my family, they're going to be okay just because of the way we talk about it. We don't put any shame on anything. It was a tragedy and we're strong because of it. And they'll be strong because of it, too. And I just imagine how strong, you know, Molly had to be to survive everything. You know, they literally had a plan to kill not only her, but her entire family. And they they succeeded for the most part. And, you know, from her family's account, she truly loved Ernest despite his flaws and his schemes to help his uncle murder her family. Margie said that her father tried to maintain a relationship with his dad, Ernest, after he was released from prison. But he was just so enraged by their family history 
Margie said her dad turned to alcohol and had anger issues. She also said in some ways the Osage people ostracized Molly's son and daughter because they were earnest kids, which I'm sure didn't help with any anger issues and cultural healing because he could, um, you know, that, that maybe he could have benefited from. But despite it all, Margie said that he was still a good dad to her and she wished that she could have known what her grandmother Molly would think about the book and the movie. Molly was only 50 years old when she died, but as we mentioned earlier, she still held very strong traditional Osage values and was an important figure in her kids' lives. So I know today's episode is not, you know, one of our more contemporary stories, but we really hope that you guys enjoy diving into this two-parter with us, and we thank you for listening. Source materials and show notes can be found on our website, redjusticepodcast.com. You can follow us on social media at redjusticepodcast. We appreciate those, again, taking the time to learn about Indigenous true crime stories and how they are part of the foundation of our nation and reverberate throughout our Indigenous communities today. This is the Red Justice Project.